It's Terry from No Crumbs Left, and I'm sitting across from my friend Mats Lederhausen, who I have known since he was nine and I was three years older, and whom I share a birthday with. Yes. Welcome, Mats. Thank you. Excited to be here. This is fun. Yes. It's fun. All the different places that our lives have intersected over the many years of knowing each other and how now I'm you know, getting to know your children and all of that. So it's how I knew your parents and loved them, your dad who's still here, and how you knew my parents well and loved them. And that's a really special thing that we hold that I love. Very meaningful. Indeed. So let's talk about how we met. You were nine, and you were coming to the States. And tell us a little bit about that. I, you, you, your sister was there. and Yes, my, my father was an entrepreneur, is, a, is an entrepreneur, I guess. And he had started many businesses, and he had seen the growth of McDonald's in, uh, in the United States. And he s- realized that if they opened in Sweden, he would sell them a lot of kitchen equipment because he, he was basically the representative of a lot of their kitchen e- equipment. And McDonald's, of course, had no interest in opening in Sweden because it was very early. They had just opened in Japan, and this was the late 60s. And my dad is a very persistent character, so he kept uh, writing letters to your father and to Ray Kroc. And to make a very long story short, um, uh, he charmed them, I guess, eventually. And they said, we don't really want to open up in Sweden, but we really like you. And if you want to open up Sweden, you have to come over here and train, and then you have to spend your own money opening McDonald's in Sweden. But if you want to do it, go right ahead. And so he came over here to train in 1973, and I was nine years old, and my sister was three years older, and my mom, and that's when I, and your mother was gracious enough to say to my mom that this is not a place to stay at Hyatt Hotels for like four months or whatever it was. And so I stayed with you for a few weeks, and I barely spoke English. Barely spoke English, and what I remember is that you taught me some Swedish swear words, (laughs) which is important in every language to know. Yes. I love that. And so our long friendship began. And one of the things that you know deeply connects us is that uh, I loved your sister. You loved your sister. She died a long time ago. and um, But she's someone I remember and I keep alive in my heart. And that's something that really joins us. Um, and I just wonder, tell me a little bit about that, about how um, having a sibling die affects your life, you know, sort of your view on that and what you look back and what it illuminates. Yeah, I mean, we can probably spend the whole right. <laughs> month talking about that because uh, it's thick. Uh, it's humanly thick. Uh, I was 13. She had cystic fibrosis, uh, which at that time you pretty much died from. And uh, and she did. Uh, my parents uh, didn't believe that would happen because I don't think most people give up on their kids, thank God. Um, and I probably was unaware Uh, blissfully unaware of what exactly was going to happen until it happened. And then it happened, and then, you know, I saw a family uh, struggle basically until today. I mean, it's I think it's one of those wounds that you just can't heal. It's just, it, um, but I believe that pain, we all go through pain in life, and pain either, uh, you either somehow figure out a way to process it and get better for it, or uh, you transmit that pain to others. And I hope to, I'd like to believe that uh, we found a way to move on and, and help others. And that's what why we got involved with Ronald McDonald House Charities, of which I'm still very involved. And 
We have a foundation in our honor that I chair. We try to help other kids with the same condition. And, uh, and uh, you know, my, um, my own choice of career, I guess, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into that later, um, is in no small way, I think, uh, uh, ultimate result of this. I think when you win the ovarian lottery, when you have a genetic disease in your parents, and they, A, have a child and who gets ill, or sick and gets the disease, and then they gamble one more time to just gamble, which is a big gamble because it's not lost on me that had I had the same disease when she died, it would have been a miserable couple of years for me waiting to die. Right. Uh, when I was lucky enough to not have the disease, of course, I think I feel a sense of responsibility to make my life matter in some manifest way, and I do my best to honor her every day. Yes, I love that. One of the things that... Um, your mother was just like this amazing force. And when I met your mother and I was a, a young girl, she was this really cosmopolitan. Um, I just sort of never met anyone like your mom. She was just this amazing goddess. And um, what was interesting was I what I learned and what I saw was that even though, you know, your family had this tragedy and it was such a tragedy, your mother took that and she shifted her own life in some powerful ways. You know, she was, you're a fortunate family. It's not that your mother had to work, but she really made this decision. And talk a little bit about what, what she did. Yeah, my, my mother was, um, uh, she grew up a very spoiled only child by a very generous and, and spoiling father, I guess, who adored my mother. So she grew up in that kind of, on a pedestal. Uh, not, particularly affluent, but, you know, comfortable, but nothing more than that, small apartment. And then she met my father, uh, but my mother was, was very strong-willed, and I, I think he was, she was sort of a natural-born feminist in, in a way. She right? really was. It was before yeah. we had that language, really. Mm-hmm. Or it was emerging, I guess. And she always worked, and um, she worked with my father uh, in his businesses, and she basically ran the books, and she was the order in the house, and then, you know, they took care of my sister, I guess me, but when my sister died, she kind of changed completely and, and became a nurse. And then she started working for the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation and, and became their nurse. And then she started Ronald McDonald Houses and built those, five of those in Sweden. And she passed away last year, as you know. And um, she, um, no, she was a very strong woman. Um, unfortunately, she had very, very early onset of dementia. Um, that started changing her already in her mid-50s. Wow. And, and um, she was pretty gone the last 10 years, so that's sad. Uh, so right. I kind of lost her very early. Right. And do you find now, I mean, you know, I know I, I attended the service that you had last year. Do you find now that, you're, that she's been gone, that you get her back in some ways because you're remembering your mom before more? Interesting. Uh, I haven't thought about that. Yeah. It, that that is probably true. Mm-hmm. I think that is happening, even though I haven't reflected mm-hmm. on it. I think that is true. I think in the in the first, uh, I mean, it's it's an unusual way to lose a parent, and a lot of people go through it where they sort of, you really lose them very early, and then yeah. there's like ten years of just transportation towards some darkness that yeah. is not fun and it's not pleasant and. It's almost going back to having them as a child again. Like mm-hmm. you take care of them. It's like feels like the ultimate revenge. You know, you yeah. change diapers on them, um, and and you're you're probably right. In the first few months after it, it was like grief and loss, and, and you mourned her, 
and you thought still about the, the more recent memories. But now the, the more time that's passing, the more I probably remember her. I made a lot of albums lately. And, to, and right. you know, it's um, today, actually, I, I ordered her uh, tombstone or her mm-hmm. gravestone uh, to be made complete so we can go back to Sweden and unveil that in the summer. So, I mean, there's, um, I have very, very um, beautiful, good memories of her, and I'm very happy to have had her as my yes, mother. Yeah. I mean, she just was uh, an incredible woman. And I remember when I was probably 15 or 16, maybe it was after Erica died, I came to Sweden and spent time with you guys there. And uh, it was just really, when I think about it, I know you and I both have pictures from it. Yeah. When I think of those like sort of special times and catching a crab or you guys teaching me about your culture and, you know, eating seafood that was different than any seafood I'd ever had and having smur and just like all of the things, um, even being around that table in that in, in your summer house and everyone singing and drinking and no one speaking English. But you, you, it didn't matter because you just could feel the energy of, of the magic of what was going on and, and not speaking the language wasn't a deterrent in having a spectacular time. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah, and it was interesting. I will never forget. I went, you know, and of course, um, sunbathing, topless in Sweden is just what, is what people do, yes. right? And I remember being, like, I don't know, 16 and going with your family to the beach and going, okay, what do I do? It's like, I don't want to be that person that is, and you know, I was not that worldly. I don't want to be that person that, that can't sort of go with what it was, but it's like, this is a little bit odd for me. So I remember thinking, I'm going to go topless and just tan my back sort of my strategy. So anyways, it's a family, it's a story that I kind of love and I love to think of. And I actually kind of feel good about the choice I made because it could have been easy just to say, oh, I'm not going to do it. But it was like, yeah, it's kind of, you got to ride with it. Um, mm. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing now. What, tell, tell me about Because and what that is. And Yeah, I, I think uh, in order to tie it to the story and certainly with, with your history and your father, I think what happened to me was that I um, so I grew up in the McDonald's business as a mm-hmm. young boy, and then eventually I uh, became a partner with my father in the business. It was always kind of expected that this would be what I would do, um, which had its benefits because I I, I I loved McDonald's and I and I thought it was more a business for my generation than his, so it made sense. But it was a small business, and I you know my father's a very strong man. Uh, and I felt like I probably should do something different uh, for a while, and it was probably a good choice. I went to business school, um, and then I uh, eventually um, got a job with BCG, Boston Consulting Group, in London, which I loved, and had a great time. And then uh, Sweden entered a recession, and uh, I was asked to come back home and you know help him and others you know f- improve the business. And uh, we did over time. But one of the things that happened that really surprised me, which led me to where I am today, I think, in, in, a, in a sort of at a meta level, was that when I asked customers about their feelings about McDonald's, because we were losing sales, and I was wondering why, there were a lot of patterns emerging that I had never heard of, like antibiotics in feed and, uh, you know, obesity epidemics and... You know, the food isn't healthy and um, environmental degradation and sustainability and monoculturism and all these things. And I I was just like, I was 27 years old and I was like not having heard them. And I think I'm partly forgiven because it was 30 years ago and they were new. And Sweden is a very progressive place, as you well know. And when I called McDonald's, they just said, like, we don't 
we know what you're talking about. But I guess what makes me a little different than other business guys is that I talked to these people and I thought that their facts were actually compelling, mm -hmm. that we have these problems. I didn't agree with them then, and I don't agree with them now, that they're all McDonald's faults. Obviously, that's, that's ridiculous. But I do believe we have these problems, and as a responsible restaurateur, I think we can do something about them. And so I set upon a journey to uh, build a more sustainable, organic, better version of McDonald's. And I did, and we did. And over 10 years, we built a lot of restaurants, and we did really, really well. And over those 10 years, we did really, really, really well, and the rest of McDonald's started doing more poorly. And I was subsequently asked when there was a leadership change here to come over here and, and, and help McDonald's, you know, with some of these modernization. And I'm happy to say that today, 20 years later, McDonald's is in a much better shape. Um, I hope to believe that I had something to do with mm -hmm. that, just a little bit. But after a number of years, I felt like I want to go do it this full time. I, I, was, I was emboldened and really uh, found my mission my purpose in life is to humanize capitalism, to make capitalism work for more people. I think we have gotten capitalism a little confused over the last 20, 30 years. And I think a lot of the problems we see today in our rhetoric and in our, you know, I think capitalism to some extent is under assault right now. And some would say for good reason, thank God it is. And some people are very worried about it because the alternatives aren't exactly better. But I firmly believe that the idea that we kind of started subscribing to here in the 70s and 80s, particularly in America, that the only job of a business is to make money, I think is wrong. Absolutely. I've always believed that's wrong. I think it's morally wrong. I don't think it even works because people do things in life more than just for money. Money is important. I think people that say that it's not are lying. I think it's important for everybody. Some people it's more important too, but we all need it. We need to eat. We need to pay rent. We need to, and we most people that I've met prefer more money over less. But that doesn't mean it's the only goal. And I think the goal of a business must first be to solve human problems. And if you're really good and you do that really well, you can make a lot of money in that order. And I, I think the first um, objective there in that statement have kind of been a little bit pushed aside and in some cases completely forgotten. We've also have what economists call externalities. Maybe we're, we're privatizing the gain, gains of business and socializing the losses. So I'm appalled that from you know, the 2008 bank crisis, all those banks and most of those bankers didn't pay a dime in penalties. They're, they're now making more money than ever. And like we have uh, environmental degradation where you know, people have done like carbon for instance, there should be a tax on carbon, in my belief, because it's clear that that's damaging to the earth. And I think there's a lot of things we need to correct with business that I, I don't particularly like. But I am a capitalist. So 11 years ago, I decided to just go out on my own and build businesses that are born this way, that have a hardwired commitment to a purpose bigger than their product. So every business I involve myself in have a stated goal to do something manifestly good. Now, I'm open for debate and criticism whether I'm succeeding. Uh, you know, we all, it's a free world. I, you know, I believe that the businesses that I am building are better and they're solving real human problems. Um, they're not all going to save the world. I don't pretend that, you know, no one business can do that. But I'm trying to attack things like how Americans eat, how Americans are educated, what they put on their skin, 
um, how to change human behavior relative to eating well, well because it's really hard. Um, I have a venture capital fund that uh, partners and I have, have built in Boston. It's called Q-Ball, which has permanent capital base because one of the biggest problems with the world, I think, is that we're so short-term. So I say we live in a short-term world with long-term problems. So we elect political leaders that we believe are going to fix our problems tomorrow, and we become really disappointed. And then we elect, elect the next leader, and we think he or she will fix our problems in the next cycle, and they will be forever disappointed. We invest in companies, and we want them to make money for us in a year. And I just believe that everything worthwhile doing takes a decade, if not more. And we have to just align our expectations on results, whether it's in politics or economics or education, against the reality of life. We're more farmers than we are, um, you know, uh, in the extractives industry. Like farming takes a while. It's just a plant takes a while to grow. A baby takes a while to grow. Good creative work takes a while, and we just have to let it do its work. I think one way that you and I are really joined is that we're optimists, no matter that we live in this world and that there are all the problems that there that there are. Um, talk to me a little bit about that. How are you an optimist? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, I, I'd say there are there are there are, there's one uh, particular problem today that that hinders our optimism, and I'll, I'll get to your answer in, a, in, in answering your question in a second. But I particularly believe that our current quality of conversation in in society is at an appalling level of just concern. We cannot have the kind of conversation you and I are having. Uh, if you turn on the news, it is bantering, bickering, divisive, evil. If you look at social media, people are demonizing the other side and the other argument and don't want to even listen. People live in echo chambers and they're feeding their anger versus having just a thoughtful conversation with people with a different point of view right. and right. talking about it. And that makes me really concerned, and I'm doing what I can to. Um, one of the reasons I'm, I'm really involved with TED, and as you know, my wife is a TEDx organizer. And you know, TED is one of the few places where we're trying to foster a conversation about important topics without sort of shooting each other. So that's, that's a concern. The reason why I'm an optimist is that I believe two fundamental truths today are really powerful. One is, do you believe in human goodness? Right, exactly. I believe that the vast majority of human beings wake up every day and try to be good people. If you don't believe that, I, I just don't know what to tell you. Yeah. Uh, there are some very unfortunate people that have been traumatized, that have serious mental issues or serious diseases, for whom this is not, unfortunately, might be true, temporarily or permanently, but that is a vast minority. The vast majority of people wake up every day and they do incredible amounts of work to be good people. Um, so if you believe in that and then you, if you believe the new reality, which is that for the first time in human history, almost every human being on the planet have access to the world's accumulated knowledge. That has never been the case. For thousands of years, it was stuck in the hand of priests or kings or the wealthy only. And today, everybody can find access to knowledge anywhere immediately for free. And if you believe in human goodness and if you believe that knowledge is power, and I believe both, that has to be more good than bad. And we will, it will trump 
sort of, mm-hmm. no pun intended, any bad thing that will come after it. So that's yeah. what makes me an optimist. I'm, I'm, I definitely feel the same way. I mean, I just, I see it in my own life all of the time. I mean, I grew up with a woman who was about unconditional acts of kindness, and she was just always the gal who was putting the money in the toll and then zipping on so, you know, someone wouldn't know or kindly taking care of some situation. And I saw my parents as people who were always modeling a pay-it-forward model. And I find that no crumbs left. And in my own community, there are people that just step forward all of the time who want to help, who want to be a part of something, you know, who who care about civility, who say, we may all even believe things different politically, but we gather around sort of life, community, food, love, and the difference that that can make. Um, and and I think that people, you know, in that community, from my experience, are always trying to pay it forward and make a difference. And I, I absolutely believe that people are inherently good. Speaking and I, of- and I, th- I think, Terry, honestly, like if, if you don't feel optimistic, uh, I urge all of us to get together and like hug each other and try to find right. optimism. Because if, we don't, if we're not optimistic about the future, what are we? Right. And it's it, to me, it's a choice. I mean, I love reading the books like like The Secret and you know The Power of Positive Thinking. I always have, and whenever I'm trying to accomplish anything in my life, I really just get back into. For example, I was thinking about my friend Ellen Rogan, who I haven't seen in ten years, and I've been thinking about her, thinking I want to see her, I want to email her. I today I come here the podcast, I run into Ellen, you know, and I feel like there is that that ability that I really believe in the world about the ability to manifest stuff or sort of get on the right wave of you're going to meet the right people, the right things are going to happen. And conversely, when I'm thinking negative about something and like, oh, it's not going to work and it's not going to, and I'm putting myself in that mode, I'm absolutely manifesting, you know, that as well. So what what do you think about that? Sort of synchronicity and serendipity and yeah. No, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I would say I'm sort of a spiritual light guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I believe I like in a lot of that. Um, I don't know how, to, how powerfully I believe in it, but I certainly believe in the power of belief. Yes. I, I, I have a quote that I use a lot thinking about, marinating over, which is if you believe more than you can, you can more than you believe. Right. And I think it's an undeniable fact in science that placebo effects are incredibly large. They're like in the 30s or 40s percent in many of medical tests and pharma tests and even surgical tests, and which means that you can change your own physiology just by believing. And, and you know, if people are ignoring that, I, I, I think they're ignoring human biology and human facts. And I, and I think belief is incredibly important. Um, and yes, so... We can will things into being sometimes. Right. And when, you know, and we can redirect our own thinking. I think it's a choice. Now, I'm, I'm living a fortunate life, and I've had a lot of really wonderful things happen to me, so that may be easier for me to say than somebody else. Um, but I have definitely, you know, seen it in my own life. There is, there is one more fact on that is, is um, you know, that I think is an underappreciated and under-discussed and I think not commonly thought about human fact, which is... Uh, which is commonly referred to as social contagion, which is uh, you basically are the average of the five people you spend most of your time with. So I would suggest to people, I say this all the time, if if you want to be more optimistic, you know, spend time with more optimistic people. If I, you want to like love this. more, spend time with people that love more. If you want to, you know, laugh more, spend more time with funny people. 
If you want to stop smoking, spend time with not smokers. Like it's I it's love a, this. it's an yes. undeniable fact. Yes. And there's r- books and science written about this up the gazoo that we can put in your show notes if I love if it. there are such things. Yes. But Nicholas Christakis mm-hmm. and there are lots of people that write beautifully about this. But I think it's a, something to be really pay attention to that if you find yourself ever in a negative mode, watch what you're watching, yes. watch what you're reading, watch who you're talking to. And, and try to change that, and you'll feel better. Totally. Re- recently, I was like, I, I just want to read a beautiful book, and I don't want to feel depressed the whole book. So I, I did a story and said, I, I just would love something beautiful to read. I don't want a book that I'm going to feel bad the whole time, and then at the end, something good's going to happen. I want, you know, I want to be nourished. And so people gave me lots of good suggestions. And I like, I'm carefully watching what I watch. I find that if I'm watching the news constantly, if I'm, uh, you know, watching shows where people are arguing with each other, whatnot, like The Housewives, which occasionally can be a guilty pleasure. Um, I really love to listen to beautiful fiction because it soothes my soul and it's something I can go to sleep to and I can just wake up and think like, oh, I, I love that. You know, I love starting the day with a positive thinking book. It's like when I get in the tub for 15 minutes, I'll put on something, you know, Elizabeth Gilbert's um, Big Magic or, you know, something that inspires me and just is a great way to you know, to start my day. And I also think for me personally, it's a very fine line for me between optimism and ignorance. Right. Like I have this strange dualistic or dialectic kind of thing in my soul where I have to approach the big problems facing us. I need to be honest with them. I need to walk up to that wall, but with a positive, constructive attitude. I, I can't I can't just be positive and ignore. Yes. We have some serious problems right. to deal with. Uh, and I want to be part of dealing with them. But I want to deal with them in an open, constructive way with people that actually believe we can change things. Yes. Because I think we can. Makes a difference. When you say the, the five thing, it's funny because I've always called my closest friends the circle of five. And it's just, you know, and, it, it, and it's not even that it's just five. Let's say it could be five, could be six. But it's... It's my iPhone is one of them, by the way. But um, I call it my circle of five, which are the people that I hold nearest and dearest. And I'm a big world gal in a certain way, but I'm really a small world gal where I'm really happy with my small world around me. And speaking of the small world around you, I want to ask you about your family. I mean, you have this beautiful dynamic, just like amazing when people meet your family. It's like you you have an amazing family, your your kids, the the son-in-laws, the, you know, the babies. I just your family is so beautiful. So tell us a little bit about like about that. How did that happen? What did you do as a parent? Because I have to believe you're somehow a part of that. Tell me a little bit about your family philosophy. Well, uh, the one thing I do take credit for and and the only really good decision I've made in my life is finding and marrying Jessica. Yes. I mean, without a question. Everything else can be questioned and challenged, and I'm open for any criticism. But on that one, I I take full credit, and and, and luck, uh, I guess, is involved. And then together we have, you know, four wonderful kids. Three of them are married, um, four beautiful granddaughters, um, and they're just amazing, and and our son-in-laws and and our daughter-in-law. And... um, how did that happen? I, I don't know, Terry. I, I think there are days when I think it's just cosmic or luck or whatever. I do think that um, uh, my father and mother gave something to me, and I think we've given similar things to them in terms of work ethic. You know, we work really hard. Jessica and I are like not – we don't live our life to have vacation. We don't mm-hmm. live our life to be off we love our, we we go in full yes, all full in. blown all <laughs> in we leave everything in the on the field 
And that's the only thing they have experienced, and they've become similar. So they're ambitious, they're driven, they're hardworking. The other thing that has been a very constant manifestation in our family has been sort of responsibility for the world and for your actions and, you know, for what you can contribute. So I think they are, they've grown to be mature, um, you know, responsible, caring uh, people that, yes, they are driven and they all are in, on their own lane and in their own career, but they, they all work on meaningful things where they want to contribute to this world. And, and uh, so I'm, I, I couldn't be prouder of them. Uh, we have a great relationships with all of them. I get to work a little bit with some of them, particularly my son who is in, in one of our businesses in, in Boston. And uh, it's just we see them, you know, often, and um, it's I couldn't be happier. I'm, yeah, beautiful. I've been, it's been fun getting to know them. How long have you been married? Because I did want to ask this. I never ask anyone about their marriage. And we I rarely have met on, to tell you the truth. Uh, but you're you're happily married. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that, because we know that marriage takes some work. Oh, yes, mm-hmm. it does. I am very happily married uh, since 31 years this mm-hmm. summer. Um, and um, Actually, uh, Jessica and I was at a lecture last night together uh, at a class at Kellogg, and we were asked a similar question. So it's it's interesting. Again, I don't think there is any magic. I do believe that um, the most beautiful definition of love that I've ever heard uh, that, that rocked me at a very young age was this notion that love is when you are as interested in another human being's spiritual development as you are in your own. And that takes some marination, it takes some some thinking about, but I, I think that a lot of relationships go wrong when there isn't a mutually equally strong commitment to the other person's need and desire and, and space to grow. And I think I would say, I don't know if this is uh, politically incorrect to say, but I think it is fair to say that up till this moment in time, men hasn't done such a good job on that uh, uh, category. Or, or I think they have taken the front seat in sort of their job and their career by and large. It is fortunately changing pretty rapidly, uh, thank God. And I think for some reason, maybe because of my mom, don't know. I would give my mom some credit, but I would give Jessica most credit because she is the kind of woman that just she wouldn't have it any other way. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have lured her into marrying me. Right. And if there wasn't this strong mutual connection mm-hmm. that, you know, our growth and our right to have the space to grow uh, is just uh, uncompromisable. It's just, um, uh, you know, unapologetic. It's mm-hmm. just It just has to be there. So I think that is probably the most important part of, of a sustained relationship because we, uh, life is not a linear curve. Life is not just a straight line. We go through issues. You know, we've had kids. We've, been, we've had our ups and downs as a family. There's been challenges in, in around us. But uh, if our relationship was always, has always been rock solid uh, because there's a deep commitment. Like this is the way we want to live our lives mm-hmm. There are days she drives me nuts. There, I'm right. sure there are many days right. I drive her nuts. But there's never been sort of a question around we are a team and we have these beautiful kids and we just move on. And, and uh, we push each other to sort of do what we are out here to do. Um, so, and then, you know, we share responsibilities on many things. And I think we live a fairly modern, modern household. And how is that? I mean, you grew up in Sweden. You are Swedish. You're living in America 
talk a little bit about that. How is that different? How is your life here different than what your life would be like there? What are some of the things you like really about, you know, living here, you know, or what do you sort of bring together through all of it? That's a great question. <clears throat> I, I think what I love about America, if I start about this, I mean, what I love about America, I wish most Americans knew because I think they take it for granted, which is that this is, this is a real free society by, after all, it is. I know we have lots of issues. I'll get to them in a second. But it's a free society in the sense that it was created by a desire to be free. And there's no monarchy. Uh, the, the, the ceiling is very tall. You can go places. You can go really far. I never run into a feeling here that I know everybody. Uh, Sweden is a very small society. You know everybody, which has, like every bad thing, it's good too, right? That's kind of charming. You walk on the street and know everybody. But it's like here you feel like it's a ladder that takes you to heaven. It's like a stairway to heaven here. You can like, you just can keep climbing. There's always things to learn. There's always fascinating people to meet. And you run into – it's just so big and expansive and, and the sky's the limit here. And I love that feeling about uh, America. And um, – so that's really great. I think, unfortunately, during the 20 years we've lived here, I don't think America has evolved and grown to its best shape and form. I think we have some challenges here that is weighing us down. Um, our healthcare system economically is weighing us down. I think health in general is weigh- weighing us down here. We've had serious political issues for a long time here and, and lack of fixing basic things like infrastructure. I am appalled by the state of early child care here. I think it's a, it's a disaster. We're actually disincentivizing people to have kids, which is a really dumb idea for a society. Uh, so there are lots of things that, that needs to be better here. Um, and, and we can certainly learn from things in Sweden. What, what I miss, what I think Sweden does better than America is to run government programs mm-hmm. uh, because it's not, you know, they tax their population not much more than we do here. And there are subways and there are election programs. And there, when you go to the police there, when you go to things that are run by government there, it is of a markedly higher quality and better and better functioning. And, you know, some of that is probably because it's a much smaller society. It's like Chicago, right? So it's, it's I don't know if it's apple, apples to apples comparison, but there's things that are great there and there's things that are certainly great here. We love li- living here, obviously, and we're, we stayed here for a reason. We, we chose to be Americans, and, mm-hmm. but we're also Swedish and yeah. won't go away. I think the one area that has lately struck me that I didn't realize um, in the whole Me Too movement how more sexist America is oh, yeah. compared to Sweden. Yeah. I mm-hmm. I didn't, maybe it's because I'm a guy, maybe mm-hmm. it's because the McDonald's culture was never particularly when I was there. Mm-hmm. We were pretty, I think, good on that. I yeah. didn't see a lot of that. Yeah. So I haven't experienced it myself. Obviously, I haven't experienced some of the views because I'm a guy, but I've also not seen it really. But it has dawned on me now when I see it. And like, we are a family. My wife is a professional golfer mm-hmm. originally, and all our kids played you know, golf at really high levels all the way through college. And you just like at golf clubs. There are all these, I would say, sexist rules that Mm -hmm. I think are inappropriate to 2019. Like girls can't play on Sundays. And there's still these little, um, you know, things from the past that we keep dragging on. You know, guys take their sons but not their daughters. And, like, we don't – we haven't come as far as Europe when it comes to – 
true equality between men and women. And I, I think that has been clear to me. And people say to me, like, duh, where have you been? But I, I'm sorry. I just yep. didn't realize the difference was that big. I think Sweden in particular is, you know, a generation ahead on that, I think. But, I'm, you know, I look at the younger generation. I think they're catching up very quickly. I see it with my kids. I see it. So I think we just have to, you know, be mindful of it and, and – um, I just want to get to a point very soon here in America where, like, whatever your color of your skin, whoever you love, whoever you're dating, whatever sex you decide to have, mm-hmm. or it are, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's only the content of your character and who you are and how you show up and what you're willing to do and say and and act on that matters. The rest is in. It just doesn't matter. We just got to get to that point soon. I can't wait. I love that. Well, that's a fantastic place to end. Mats, thank you for coming. It, it's such a pleasure. I you know, know you in all of these different ways, and um, I just wanted for people to hear a little bit about you and what you're doing and all that. Where do people find you? Well, they can find me on Twitter, where I you know, don't tweet profusely, but, profusely, but I, I tweet what I feel is important. It's, on, it's uh, at Mats Leader, M-A-T-S-L-E-D-E-R. They can also go to be-cause.com, which is my website, um, and LinkedIn, and they can find me in most places. I, I don't hide. Okay, good. They can come find me if they want to find you. Um, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's Terry Love from No do. Crumbs Left signing off. Come find me over at Instagram, on Facebook, or on the blog. Have a great day.